The MarTech Podcast is a proud member of the I Hear Everything Podcast Network. Looking to launch or scale your podcast? I Hear Everything delivers podcast production, growth, and monetization solutions that transform your words into profit. Ready to give your brand a voice? Then visit IHearEverything.com. From advertising to software as a service to data, Across all of our programs and clients, we've seen a 55 to 65% open rate. Getting brands authentically integrated into content performs better than TV advertising. Typical lifespan of an article is about 24 to 36 hours. If we're reaching out to the right person with the right message and a clear call to action, then it's just a matter of timing. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear the stories of world-class marketers that use technology to drive business results and achieve career success. We'll unearth the real-world experiences of some of the brightest minds in the marketing and technology space so you can learn the tools, tips, and tricks they've learned along the way. Now here's the host of the MarTech Podcast, Benjamin Shapiro. Welcome to the MarTech Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Shapiro, and today we're going to discuss innovations in a popular class of MarTech tools. Joining us is Brian Kotliar, who is the head of marketing and growth at HighTouch, which is a data activation company powered by reverse ETL. And in addition to providing us with our guest today, HighTouch is also a sponsor of the MarTech Podcast. Yesterday, Brian and I talked about why you can buy almost every marketing tool imaginable and still not get value out of them. And today we're going to continue the conversation and talk about usage-based pricing and product-led growth. All right, here's the second part of my conversation with Brian Cotlier, the head of marketing and growth at HighTouch. Brian, welcome back to the MarTech Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Excited to have you back on the show. Excited to continue our conversation. And thanks again for you and HighTouch being a sponsor of the MarTech Podcast. You're in an interesting space, and we talked a little bit about it yesterday, which is this sort of underlying value behind all of the tooling that is in the MarTech industry. We all think about the different point solutions that we're buying and integrating all our MarTech tools, but fundamentally, those tools are only as useful as the data they rely on. And so you're either going to your data warehouse directly using reverse ETL, maybe you're using a CDP to try to get the data to the right place. It's kind of a brand new world when it comes to how marketing companies, people that are using MarTech, are using their tools, and you're kind of in the middle of it. So I'm curious to hear from you a little bit about your marketing strategies. You're in a relatively new category. It's kind of undefined. It kind of piggybacks off an existing category. How do you think about marketing high touch and and what are some of the models and growth strategies that you use? I've been fortunate to have like a pretty varied background in software space, helping companies try to hyper grow with a bunch of different models and approaches. And I think if you pay attention to sort of the murmurings in the MarTech community, especially like the B2B one these days, there was a period of time where we all were very sales-led operations. You have reps, you need the reps to call people, you try and get MQLs to feed the reps and count up the quota that all the salespeople carry. And then if that number is greater than your goal, you win, if not, you lose and so on. And then there was sort of this pendulum swing not too long ago toward what's called product-led growth, a term kind of beautifully coined by the venture capitalists over at OpenView, I think where, oh, well, that's a big pain in the butt. Why can't we all just be Figma and let the product do the work for us and make gobs of money based on that? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, wouldn't that? Gosh, 
I think then what we learned is that not every product really lends itself to that. Some do, some don't. It tends to be kind of collaboration products and workflow products tend to really kind of win on that front. But now I think that what we're moving towards as a market space, it seems like, is kind of what more and more people are calling hybrid. It's where you try and sort of interlace the selling models, where for the companies that you want to sell to that need to buy from a seller, you have a sales team. For the companies and individuals that are able to adopt on their own just by signing up and trying the product, you do product-led growth and you make it so the product can do that. And the really tricky part is the interlacing between the two. When somebody signs up for the product, when do you know it involves a seller? When somebody's talking to a seller and then signs up for the product, what do you do? It's this kind of complicated, interesting dance, but when you kind of nail it, which is what we're trying to do here at High Touch and what I worked on in my last couple of companies, fairly successfully, at least I think so, when you nail it, the kind of growth you can get out of it is wildly more efficient and faster than anyone by itself. You know, it's funny, you're at a venture-backed, high-growth startup, relatively large team, high-profile, and I'm a guy running a podcast, and we actually have the same problems. <laughs> I am building content as a service to help B2B brands create their own podcasts, and I'm struggling with how much of this should be self-service. We've got a sponsorship model, and we post our pricing and try to make it so people can just come in and buy a sponsorship, and we can implement it easily and efficiently without having to do a ton of heavy lifting because we're resource-constrained. And it seems like you're actually going through the same problems, finding the balance of when to interject yourself into the sales process as opposed to when you should just build out product Talk to me about how you've tried to find the balance between those two methodologies. So there's some self-reflection you kind of have to do, I find at the start, which is you kind of have to be sort of brutally honest with yourself. To use the favorite example, like you kind of said in jest there, we all want to be that, but let's be honest, we're just not. We all want to be a money-making machine, sure. Sure. Where obviously I'm not saying it's trivial for Figma to grow the way they grow, but we all want to have viral adoption and be Slack, be Figma, whatever. But this is like lightning in a bottle type stuff. It just most products, most things, signing up to advertise on a podcast or signing up to buy a data integration technology it doesn't work that way. You got to kind of understand, are there aspects or attributes of your product that people can just sign up for? And so first is, is it even possible for folks to do that? The next one is, is it recommended? It's actually a very interesting problem. I've encountered this in past roles where people wanted to buy on their own. They didn't want to talk to a seller, but they would have really bad outcomes by trying to adopt the product by themselves because the product was just kind of complex. They would churn and they would not be happy. And I'm like, well, I know I made you happy at first because you got to do whatever you wanted on your own without talking to anybody. But ultimately, this proved to be a bad thing because you weren't properly introduced to the product. You didn't use it well. So that's the next thing you kind of have to understand is does your product lend itself to this? And then I think the last thing is, I take this from perspective of like, what is your product? What does your customer want? The last thing is, what do you want? So sometimes it's actually okay, in spite of all those things, to say to your customer, no, you need to talk to me. And that's usually derived from attributes of the customer. So maybe to use your case example, if Procter & Gamble with its amazing budget showed up tomorrow and for some reason decided to just pour gobs of money into the MarTech podcast, you probably wouldn't want them to make that decision and buy by filling in a simple form online and not talk to you. You want to offer them a thoughtful advertising package, something that makes sense for them that's going to maximize the ROI so they come back and buy again next quarter, next holiday season, whatever. Meanwhile, maybe some small shop wants to do a one-off little promo. Maybe it's okay. So the attributes of the person you're selling to have a big influence on the attributes of the sales process you want to apply. And figuring that out can be tricky. So what I'm hearing from you is that there's segmentation in terms of your business model. And one of the topics in the title of this podcast 
was usage-based pricing. If somebody's going to be a high volume user, that affects what they're pricing. It also could affect what the business model is. So how are you figuring out who are your high ticket, high profile users? What are the signals that you look for to understand when the Procter and Gambles of the world show up at your door? And how do you figure if it's just some podcast host who's interested in reverse ETLs? We live in a very interesting time as marketers where data is actually quite abundant. Obviously, there's all kinds of GDPR rules and CCPA rules and things like that. Still accessible, but going away. Going away and or you might say the applications of it are being increasingly restricted. We're still allowed to know things, but what we can do with those things we know are increasingly restricted, it feels like. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is the good news is you actually only really need to know things. So if I can figure out when you come to my website or when you engage with my product or my team that you're a smaller podcast company or whether you're a big giant enterprise with very complex needs, already right there, I can start to do some differentiation of experience I deliver and certain choices I make about how to follow up. An example might be, well, actually, I don't know if that even needs an example. You know, I think that's actually pretty clear, right? I'm going to want to treat you differently. And the big value I said, there was a good article in the New York Times not too long ago about this kind of cautioning consumers to use their email address less because just the email address is this amazing anchor from which you can learn so much. In particular in B2B, a corporate email address, a domain address, unleashes this incredibly rich set of data attributes about where you work and what the potential complexity of your use case may be. I can elaborate on that if that's interesting, but I don't know if that's obvious or not. Yeah, I mean, I get the general principle that if you're giving one bit of information that can be enriched to find other information, that helps you figure out what your segmentation is. I don't think that's new news to marketers here. To me, what I'd love to hear about is not necessarily only your segmentation. Sure, you're getting some information when somebody fills out a form, you're figuring out who it is, and then you're figuring out what the right process is. The articulation of selling a reverse ETL. Talk to me a little bit about that. You're the head of marketing at a company that is on the forefront of this new iteration of, let's call an existing class of products, an existing category. I don't know if you're a new category. Is reverse ETL different than CDP? Is it a type of CDP? When you're thinking about matching the right buyer with the right product experience, with the right packaging, but you also have to sell them something new. How are you actually communicating what a reverse ETL is when your buyers might be confused and might need education about not only the class of products, but your specific offering? So I have this like dumb truism I use a lot with my team, which is if somebody's looking to buy a shovel and they come into your store, you kind of want to make sure they see that you carry shovels. And I think part of the problem is in a lot of marketing, especially software and MarTech and stuff, is we kind of obscure whether or not there's a shovel in the back with all kinds of flowery and sort of unclear promises of value props and benefits and all this stuff. And of course you need value props and benefits, but let's just be super clear here. Did I walk into a shoe store or a hardware store? Because I kind of want to leave if I need a shovel in the shoe store. My point in this kind of strange anecdote is to say that what I want to do is I want to get the person to see some software and touch some software as fast as possible. Even if they're not quite the right fit to implement it. You know, in our conversation yesterday, we talked a little bit about how like not can be kind of hard to set up some of these more complex tooling. But what I need them to understand is this is a product to solve a particular data integration challenge I have. And it's either going to be very easy or very hard to set up. Once we're over that hump, sort of a whole new array of things are open to me because there's a lot of intent that is signaled when somebody's doing that exploration. To use my category, my specific product as an example, if you show up to my website on a page that describes connecting your Salesforce CRM data to your email marketing system of some kind, I now know a great deal about the kind of company you are. Small little companies don't have Salesforce. 
what email tool you use tells me a lot about whether you're a B2B or a B2C company and so on. And so I can prescribe a different successive experience, a different kind of email sequence you're going to go into, a different kind of sales search which you're going to go into based on those attributes that I've gathered from your interactions with my product and my website and so on. It's a fascinating example of talking to a customer's pain. You are very much different than a CDP, but you're competing in the same category as all the CDP providers. So I guess the question is, do you talk about how we're different and we're not a CDP? Or do you talk about how you solve the same problems that a CDP would? Where does the methodology to which you solve the problem come into play when you're describing a reverse ETL compared to a CDP? Generally, what I want to say to folks is that you know your problem, which is typically some kind of a data movement issue. So like, that's my shovel moment. You have a data movement problem. I am a data movement company. If I can match that, I've earned the right to go to the next step in the conversation. Next step is, okay, you have a preconceived notion coming into this conversation or this session on my website of different ways of moving data, ranging from downloading a spreadsheet and uploading it somewhere all the way up to having something complex and expensive like a CDP. And now I need to essentially differentiate myself from that whole array of things. And it's not only CDPs, it actually is spreadsheets. It's emailing files, it's iPass solutions, it's Zapiers, it's all these different ways of moving data. So whatever that preconceived notion you've shown up with, I now need to explain my value prop. And mine is essentially, if you have a central source of truth, whether it's in a spreadsheet or something fancy like a warehouse, I can get that data anywhere you need it faster than any other possible way of doing so. Here's the hierarchy that I've learned in my head. You need to understand who you're talking to. You need to understand what their problems are. You then need to create a pricing and packaging model that communicates how you can solve their problem efficiently. Then the last thing that you're worried about is how that's different than some of the other solutions. If you can't solve the underlying problem, it doesn't matter how you're different than your competition. Focus on who your customer is, focus on solving their pain, and the nuance of your differentiation comes out as the thing that gets you over the last hurdle, not necessarily what needs to lead. That's what I'm learning from the reverse ETL marketing. Brian, that's what I'm learning for you, and I appreciate you coming on my podcast to be my guest. Thanks for having me so much. All right. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Brian Cotlier, the head of marketing and growth at High Touch, for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with Brian, you could find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter. His handle is bcotliar, that's B-K-O-T-L-Y-A-R. Or you could visit his company's website, which is hightouch.com. Just one more link in our show notes I'd like to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening to this podcast, head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and you can even send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is martechpod, M-A-R-T-E-C-H-P-O-D on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is Ben J. Shap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day this year. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow morning. Morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.
Thanks for listening to the MarTech Podcast, and I hear everything production. Looking to launch or scale a podcast like this one for your brand? Then visit IHearEverything.com.